And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg, and I'm excited that I can begin the program with Roger Mariano, uh, who I first uh, became acquainted with uh, when he was on staff at Carthage College, where I teach. Uh, Roger Mariano uh, is now founder and president of Bridges for Justice and also director of strategy and innovation for MSM Global Consulting based in Washington, D.C., more to the point for this conversation today, uh, Roger Mariano is also going to be facilitating uh, what is called a courageous conversation, which is going to be taking place this Thursday evening at the Civil War Museum in downtown Kenosha. A courageous conversation about racism. And it's hard to think about uh, a topic that is more fraught with complexity. And uh, it is something not easy to talk about. It is especially not easy to, in a sense, understand, especially when we sometimes are talking about uh, our own racism, which we might not be fully able to appreciate uh, or, or, or own up to, if you will. So anyway, this courageous conversation can be a really decisive step forward in terms of people coming to grips with what racism is, the role that all of us play one way or another in systemic racism, and, uh, and what we can all do uh, to, to rid the world, to whatever extent is possible, of, of racism and the damage that it does. This is uh, a free event at the uh, Civil War Museum this Thursday evening, and I'm really glad to have a few minutes to speak with Roger Moriano about what is going to ensue and uh, what he wants all of us to be thinking about. Roger Moriano, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be with you all. Uh, Ahead of us uh, talking about what's going to happen Thursday evening, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, talk about these uh, two things I I mentioned in my introduction. First of all, this this group called Bridges for Justice. Uh, Tell us what this group is all about and what you do with them. Yeah, thank you, Greg. So I founded Bridges for Justice back in 2016 as a way to really reach out to and work with uh, organizations locally where I live. I live in Gurney, Illinois, and uh, as I had been doing at that point, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion work for about 15 years up until that point, uh, I really felt that there was a need to take the work out into the local community. A lot was happening around the country. Uh, A lot of incidents were happening in schools that were really um, making students feel unsafe. Um, And so uh, I really started um, the organization to really start to work with schools and address many of the concerns that exist in terms of how inclusive uh, students feel, how valued students and uh, staff feel, and how safe folks feel around issues of race and uh, gender and sexual orientation and so forth. And so um, I've been fortunate enough to work with um, quite a few organizations in the Lake County area uh, where I live, and then also um, even more broadly on occasion uh, doing speeches and presentations. So that was really the genesis of that. Um, as that work evolved and as I continued to move forward in my career uh, and then eventually move out of higher education, uh, I ended up um, being pulled in um, and invited by uh, the team at MSN Global Consulting in Washington, D.C., which is an organization that is founded by um, women and uh, which is really dedicated to the same types of causes and issues on a more broad, a broader scale. And so uh, I've been with that uh, company now for just over two years. I just celebrated two years a couple of weeks ago. And um, 
that organization does incredible uh, work in really helping organizations, companies, corporate entities, nonprofit organizations, governmental agencies uh, all around the country uh, to really uh, embed within their policies and practices a culture of inclusion, a culture of equity, a culture where people feel like they are valued and appreciated and respected and that their talents and skills uh, you know, are really, really contributing to uh, the end goal and mission of each organization. So it's been a joy to be a part of that as part of that role as well. I also serve as a co-host of the Culture Stew podcast. That's S-T-E-W, Culture Stew. And so that is a podcast that is uh, available on Apple and Spotify and all your favorite uh, platforms. And so that is an, another avenue for us to really take the message of inclusion to a broad audience and to really invite in interesting guests who are really doing amazing work in their communities and their workplaces or in, uh, you know, any small or big way to advance a greater and more equitable world. So it's been a joy to be a part of this work for a number of years, and, and I, I don't see it slowing down with all the issues happening around the world right now. <laughs> that is for sure. So this thing that is going to occur on Thursday evening, this event is being billed as a courageous conversation. And I suspect that uh, quite a few of our, our listeners are, are, are maybe acquainted with that concept, but particularly for the sake of those uh, who have not really heard that term before and know nothing about it, how would you summarize what a courageous conversation is? Yeah. Uh, so before I get into that specific, I want to just make folks aware that the Courageous Conversation program is actually a series that's put together by the Kenosha Coalition for Dismantling Racism. It's an amazing uh, nonprofit organization made up of individuals who volunteer their time to really, um, you know, spearhead community gatherings to really engage in really important matters like this. And so this is part of one of their ongoing programs that they do. And I happen to be uh, really, really honored to be invited to be a guest as part of this ongoing series. And actually, the topic of this series of the Courageous Conversations is going to be called the continued urgency and need for anti-racism work. And so what folks can expect when they come is a real um, uh, opportunity to learn kind of the roots and foundations as to how we got to where we're at today. Uh, when we talk about the continuing need and urgency for anti-racism work, the urgency is because of what we see happening all around us, right? We've continued to see instances of individuals or entire communities um, really suffering at the hands of systemic issues that really continue to exasperate the divides we see in our in our society. And so what, how did that come about? Where did that come from? Um, what is the origin of these things? And so it's important to note, and a lot of what I'll be sharing that evening will be to really, um, you know, accentuate and, and emphasize that this work, anti-racism work, has actually been going on forever um, since the founding of our country. And so there has always been a need for folks to stand up and to speak out, to get engaged, to get involved and to support and lift one another up, especially in times when it feels hopeless or it feels like you're swimming upstream and there's no progress being made. So what do we do to support and continue to be motivated and really inspire hope during those moments? And I think one thing we can learn is that these are the very same issues generations of folks have grappled with for a long, long time. And we can learn from these lessons. We can learn from how folks overcame enormous odds to slowly inch our society forward and progress 
in ways that make it more inclusive and more equitable. So that's a little bit of what we'll be talking about. I won't give away the whole plot line, but um, I'm looking forward to engaging in a conversation that really has us grapple with uh, some uncomfortable truths and yet some inspiring and uplifting uh, messages of hope, but also an, a vision of what could be. And I think that that vision has been communicated over generations by many leaders, but uh, I think it needs to be reinforced as we continue to grapple with um, the realities that we continue to face today, in particular, the the attacks on this work, right? The attacks on these efforts that are happening um, and, and what motivates that as well. So I'm looking forward to it. The so-called blowback. <laughs> uh, where Yeah, which has been every generation has, has had blowback. And, and I'll speak to that as well. But uh, that's the thing that could be discouraging is that as we engage and jump in and feel the urgency, you know, we we saw it happen after George Floyd's murder, which were, you know, this May, we will be coming up on four years since that uh, horrible incident. And um, we see oftentimes communities rally and gather and say, you know, we want to we want to do something about this. But then that blowback happens and it has happened generation after generation. And so how do you how do you work through that? How do you sustain yourself? I hope to be able to provide some ideas for that on Thursday. We're speaking with uh, Roger Moriano. He's going to be giving a presentation this Thursday evening at the Civil War Museum in Kenosha uh, on the important topic of racism under the banner of courageous conversations. Um, could we just circle back to that 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 specific question of this notion of the courageous conversation? I mean, in sure. in, in what way do we need to be courageous? Uh, about having a conversation. Uh, I mean, in, in what way is courage required when it comes to sitting down sure. and talking about racism? Yeah, I think you touched upon this briefly in your introduction, Greg, in terms of, um, you know, individuals uh, sometimes not uh, having a willingness to hear what needs to be heard about how they might be showing up in the world, right? If we, No, no one feels comfortable when we hear that we might be uh, engaging in or showing up in a way that is not inclusive, right? So that's part of the individual part of it is the, is the courage individually to to be open to feedback, to be open to how we are showing up. But the real issue when it comes to uh, what we when we're talking about in terms of courageous conversations is the willingness to confront or potentially engage in uh, a dialogue or you know some kind of moment where we can really face some of the realities that people are enduring um, that are inequitable, that are unjust. And having the, the willingness to accept these realities as actually being valid, you know, um, especially if, if, the, if the issues that exist and the truths that are being revealed are counter to the narrative we've told ourselves of who we are as a society. Um, we, you know, so often here, so many wonderful, I think, platitudes and noble intentions about what the United States of America stands for, what it means, what it's supposed to be. And certainly um, those are all good things to aspire to. But to have a willingness to confront realities of how, you know, in, in, a, in the middle of many of the great things that America has done, have there been other things that have been counter to that narrative? And are we comfortable enough to receive that message and to want to do something about it? And I think sometimes that could be very emotional for folks, and it requires courage to confront, face, accept the realities of what folks are experiencing, and then want to do something about it. Hmm. 
So what is your thought on where racism comes from and why it is, in a sense, such a persistent and pervasive presence in our world? And, um, and especially why we can make all kinds of other advancements uh, that directly impact kind of daily life, and yet uh, we don't seem to make a, a similar kind of uh, dramatic and, and, and sort of irreversible progress when it comes to this. This just seems like, uh, I mean, not that there hasn't been tremendous progress. It's important to acknowledge that. But, but this just seems like uh, a different kind of problem in which true and permanent advancement just seems in a sense, more elusive. Um, does it have anything to do with where racism comes from and and where is it? What is the source of this? Yeah, great question. And I think uh, for a full answer to that, I would say folks should come on Thursday night because <laughs> <laughs> there will be more time, I think, to really get into that. But I, I just, uh, you know, if I were to give a, just a brief response to that, I think, you know, if we understand racism um, as a systemic issue as something that is rooted in the structures and the framework of how our society was created uh, through laws, through policies, through practices, and so forth, then we begin just to have a little bit more of an understanding of why it continues to persist. And so, um, you know, racism as we know it uh, today uh, has its origins in the 1600s and uh, was very uh, tied closely to and rooted in uh, the economics of the time and the politics of that time. And so, um, you know, especially with landowners and kind of how they kind of how they led the charge in terms of, um, you know, creating the, the society that they were creating as new arrivals from Europe. And so, um, so I, I uh, you know, I think that the, the, the short answer to that is that we have to have a willingness to understand how our political, economic and social systems have been created, how they were founded, um, who they worked for and who they didn't work for, and how the residual effects of that continue to be felt today. So that, you know, part of the reason we lack progress in some areas for some groups, whether it be racial, ethnic, or so forth, um, we we see slow progress happening because we are swimming upstream or trying to work through barriers that were long created long ago um, that continue to persist and continue to have an effect today. I'll just share one brief anecdote, and that is that I was doing a training with an organization in the Chicagoland area around this topic uh, about a year ago, and we were talking about kind of the structural frameworks of how uh, particularly the law was used to really um, create these these divides that we see today. And a um, person in the audience raised their hand and said, you know, I haven't really shared this with anyone, but I I, I was stunned one day when I was looking at kind of the paperwork regarding the kind of the, the, the property that I own and the land and kind of the covenant and the deed that was put into place decades ago um, that was still part of the legal paperwork that I have today as an owner of that, of that piece of property. And the language in there said that that area was for Caucasians only and that that language was still present. And um, we can find um, countless examples of that in our society today. And, and it's not something that I think is, is – overtly practiced anymore, but the language and the paperwork and in the documentation and in the, in the legal paperwork that's available for land ownership, business ownership, 
still has examples that is still it's still present, right? And so it hasn't been remo removed. And this is something that, again, we have lots of examples of that in all areas of our society in the way school districts are funded and the way um, home ownership, uh, you know, has evolved. There are countless examples of this that really add and exasperate the divides that we see today. Hmm. I want to address one particular area of let's call it kind of the blowback that I think is currently in the air uh, that is voiced in some quarters. And that is the notion that, uh, well, first of all, I think, I think part of it speaks to what maybe once upon a time was a fairly prevalent notion, which is wouldn't it be a better world if we didn't pay attention to race? Uh, I mean, aren't we all just human beings, and why can't can't we all be colorblind? And you know, kind of like sure. when youngsters play together and they have seemingly no awareness whatsoever that you know that I'm black and you're white. But no, we're just playing in the right. sandbox and having fun. And then at some point, right. we are carefully taught, as the f famous song from South Pacific says, you know, to to pay attention to these differences, and then in some cases to draw away from them and so on. Um, and so, you know, once upon a time, I think it was much more common to kind of talk in those kind of terms about, can't we just forget about this and just all be human beings? And and now we seem to be in a different environment where it seems to me that that is not, not the way in which this tends to be framed. And it is not about right. forgetting that I'm black or I'm Hispanic or I'm whatever, uh, embracing one's own culture, celebrating it, and yet living together harmoniously. And, of course, what I'm getting at is that the blowback from some quarters is we're just talking so much about race. And doesn't that, in a sense, perpetuate some of these problems if, if we are— if, if it is such a constant in, 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 our, in our language? What is your response to that, uh, that concern? And—, uh, uh, and and how would you suggest we kind of move move through that? Great question. And it's another um, topic I plan on addressing on Thursday as well. And that is that I think that there's a, a real, uh, to me, a very um, sincere sentiment and um, I think foundation of, of why that question is asked. I think people sincerely and genuinely want to see a world where racism isn't around and isn't having an effect when they ask questions like that. And I think that's that's a good starting point for folks to understand that people really mean well when they ask that. But when you're asking folks to be colorblind, uh, and I think oftentimes people revert back to Dr. King's uh, speech at uh, the Mar March on Washington in 1963, the I Have a, a Dream speech, where he says, you know, I want people to be judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. What folks fail to recognize is that uh, First of all, you should read that whole speech, because what King does is he's not colorblind in that whole speech, right, uh, outside of that line. He uses that line to communicate a world he imagines and hopes for. But throughout that speech and throughout his work, he is absolutely addressing the issues of race by sharing the experiences of people of color because of their race. And so when we say we're wanting to be colorblind, um, again, I get that sentiment and I get what folks mean by it, but you're, what you're actually potentially doing is saying that I want to receive you without consideration of race, which might communicate to some folks, I want to receive you without 
understanding how you walk through the world because of your race. And that people of color um, and people from underrepresented communities will tell you that I want you to see the fullness of who I am because I experience the world differently than you. And if you're not understanding how my skin color has a factor in that or a role to play in how I experience the world, then you're telling me you don't want to learn, right? And I think it's important for folks to understand that that's where folks are coming from, I think. When they really say, I don't want to see color, again, I get the sentiment, but you might be telling folks that you don't want to see how they experience the world. Right. And as you're, as you're framing that, it, you know, it occurs to me that it, w- it would be easier Life would be easier if we were all colorblind, in a sense. I mean, because then we're not having to, in a sense, walk in other people's shoes and truly understand who they are, and in particular, understand the pain uh, or injustice that they have borne. And uh, so it kind of goes back to that phrase of the inconvenient truth. Uh, So it's kind of an interesting thing to to think about. I I want to ask... Yeah, and I think... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say that I think just to reinforce that, it goes back also to that the courageous conversation question, right? And if I'm hearing things, I just want the world to be colorblind. Why can't we just accept each other as human beings? We're potentially making about making that issue about our own comfort rather than the discomfort and daily challenges that people face because of their skin color, right? So we're prioritizing our own comfort level rather than the actual experience people are having. And I think that's the crucial uh, piece in terms of being courageous is to have the willingness to be uncomfortable so that collectively we can work toward a world that works for everyone. Right. Speaking of uncomfortable, I think one of the most uncomfortable things one can kind of talk about and or confront is the possibility, uh, which I I happen to think is a reality, that sometimes people experience painful things in their lives, and it really isn't about their race. It's the fact that, you know, you, you have not done a job you know, properly or, or you have you know, said or done something that, that should not have been spoken or done. And, and, and there are certain cases, of course, in which one wants to ascribe that uh, to being treated uh, in, with 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 something that that approaches racism, uh, and and I think that is an exceedingly difficult thing to talk about. I mean, uh, that is those who have acute sensitivity, uh, maybe well f- founded or understandable, but uh, and of course the blowback uh, from from quarters is you know, it's sometimes talked about playing the race card when wants to when maybe one wants to. Uh, you know, frame something in a particular way. It seems to me that this is also something that is really, really hard to talk about. And it's in particular very hard to speak up if that's kind of your genuine perspective on on that. Uh, how does that need to figure into these conversations uh, about racism and where it is in the world and in our lives? Well, what you what you ask is something that I commonly hear um, from folks in terms of, you know, uh, people using the race card or or trying to justify or excuse behavior. And so I think there are a couple of important things to note. Uh, number one, um, black and brown folks, um, you know, folks from other rep- underrepresented communities, 
you know, if we really want a, a world where we all see each other as just human, then we then we understand that um, every community has people who fail, people who do the wrong thing, uh, people who, um, you know, pr- perhaps don't live up to our societal or cultural values. So every every community has that white, black, brown and, and in between. Um, the, the one thing I, I, I think that is an important thing for folks to notice as these types of news stories or, you know, um, experiences happen is that. Quite often when someone does fail or do the wrong thing or break the law, um, there are some folks, particularly people of color, that often have the failure or the act attributed to their race or their culture. And it's been very common for me to hear folks say, um, boy, if that culture would just be better about this, then that person wouldn't be doing that. Or if there were more, you know, uh, more attention to family in this culture, then perhaps there would be less crime, right? So we hear that quite often attributed to people of color, but not often or at all to white families, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because some people may say, well, some folks are using the race card to excuse this. And on the opposite end, sometimes we see people attributing personal individual failures to um, something deficient or inferior about an entire culture. Right. I think that's very, very true. And I think you would agree that it's, these are the kind of things that can be really, really hard to talk about and yet are important to talk about. And we need to allow each other to talk about this as openly and honestly as we can. Yes, indeed. I want to ask you a a surprisingly personal question. Um, I know that I remember from our conversation that you are an athlete. You are a really good baseball player, right? (laughs) Well, some would say, yeah. it it seems to me that that uh, that the whole athletic arena has been such an interesting place in our collective culture, and it has sometimes been an arena in which acute overt racism has been practiced, and and it and it and on the other hand, it is also an arena in which there are these noteworthy uh, breakthroughs that inspire many others uh and it it's it's just really intriguing to me i mean and whether it's you know you are a player you know a a young white kid for the first time befriending black, black kids your own age because you're on the same baseball team or basketball team or whatever or you're in the stands and you're 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 a white person who's grown up in maybe a, a rather racist family or community but here you are cheering for Jackie Robinson or Hank Aaron and and having some of your own racist ideas challenged, maybe without even realizing it. Um, I just wonder what your thoughts are in terms of the role that these kind of endeavors can play, whether they're athletic endeavors or when someone's watching the Supremes on TV or whatever and and finds themselves kind of opening up to to new possibilities and and, and new communities. Uh, What do you... What do you see that role as having been and continuing to be now in the 21st century? Well, wonderful question, Greg. And I think um, those types of institutions, whether you talk about athletics or the military or other areas where you see people come together and really have to work together for a common goal and a common aim, always provides uh, an opportunity that's there, uh, a chance for folks to break through some of these barriers and to work together and to 
see each other fully for their humanity rather than what they perceived the other to be, right? So I think there's always that possibility. And I think, as you mentioned, with Jackie Robinson and other examples, there are great examples of folks who have broken through um, and how barriers have been, um, you know, moved through um, generationally on, on, in these areas. And yet at the same time, I think these institutions, whether it be the military or athletics or what have you, still face many of the same types of challenges that we do as a society as a whole. So what that would include, uh, you know, would be examples of players coming together, teams coming together, really working through, you know, challenges in their profession and, and facing opponents and coming together and overcoming enormous odds. And that's a wonderful example of people working together. But another way in which these issues might show up that reflect what's happening in society could be as if an athlete, for example, decides to be uh, outspoken on a particular issue. And so what does that do to the dynamic of the team? How does society respond? And as we've seen over the years, um, you know, uh, if someone takes a knee during the national anthem, you know, there's a lot of blowback there. If someone has something to say about another issue, uh, they might be told to just shut up and dribble, right? So <laughs> there are still challenges happening um, societally uh, in what you know, the, the, the arenas that are available for folks to come together are there, but is society ready to receive it when folks go beyond just being an athlete? Mm. Because, again, athletes are not just athletes. They are complete human beings who are full and uh, active participants in our society as well. And, you know, if, if uh, Taylor Swift wants to go to a football game, she should have that right to do that without people being upset. <laughs> exactly. A last quick question. Um, yes. It is easy uh, in, in, in the wake of, of, of difficulties to, uh, to sometimes lose sight of the tremendous progress that has been made. And, uh, and it seems to me it's a, it's a grave mistake to not understand that progress and appreciate it because uh, there's no other way to build on it <laughs> than to, to, to first right. understand it and to understand how it was achieved and at what cost. You know, that being said, do we have to be careful uh, to not... Uh, be complacent. I mean, in in what way do you think we most wisely can consider the progress that has been already made? Yeah, that's wonderful, Greg. And I love the fact that you brought up being, you know, not being complacent. I think that's crucial because I, I think that the hope for the future lies in celebrating the progress, of acknowledging the progress, of understanding what it took to get progress. And it also lies in the understanding of the systems under which we live, you know, the economic and political and social systems under which we live. And so because these systems are hugely beneficial in many ways uh, to our society and to progress, and we celebrate that, but also set the stage for us to be really competing against one another. Think about our economic and political systems, right? They're, they're designed as competition against one another, right? And that sets the stage for the potential for that to be abused such that some groups uh, become targets of this competitive environment and arena that we're in and uh, can become subject to systemic laws and policies that, you know, don't give them a fair opportunity. And so that's always been the case. So if we understand the systems under which we operate, we understand what folks have done in the past to persevere, to overcome and to move forward and to inspire others and future generations, that's where the hope lies for us to not give up to persist, and to imagine a world where everybody has a real chance to succeed. Hmm. 
Roger Mariano will be leading a courageous conversation on racism this Thursday evening at the Civil War Museum in downtown Kenosha. And, uh, Roger, I appreciate you joining me today on The Morning Show, all the words of wisdom you've shared, and uh, uh, appreciate the good work that you are doing on this uh, important issue and cause. And uh, thank you for being my Morning Show guest today. Greg, it was a pleasure, and thank you again for affording me the opportunity, and I really appreciate the work you do. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're listening to The Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We finish out today's program with an excerpt from a 2014 interview with Debbie Irving, the author of Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race, a disarmingly honest memoir about the family that Debbie Irving grew up in and about the racist attitudes that she ended up learning from her family, racist attitudes that she did not know were even there. It's probably the best book I have ever read on systemic racism, and it makes the very important point that racism does not just play out in overt fashion with members of the Ku Klux Klan burning crosses on someone's lawn. But racism also can be a much more subtle and pervasive part of our lives, which makes it even more important that we talk about it in honest fashion. That I did myself a real disservice by, and you know, I'm not sure what else I could have done because I was really behaving in the way I was socialized or thinking, thinking and acting in the way I was socialized to think and act. But I did myself a real disservice by thinking the South were the bad guys and that the North was somehow not complicit. You know, even if we go back to slavery, the North was completely complicit in slavery because all of the financial institutions that were developing, everything that was going on in the North was happening because of the economy that was being built um, on the South and on the backs of enslaved Africans. So um, at every stage, really, through history, when you really start digging, you go, oh, man, Mm. no, I can't believe that. So uh, there's so much to learn. There's so much awareness to raise. When you talk about, you mentioned something about nice, I can't remember, I have a a chapter in my book called The Culture of Niceness. One of the most unexpected ways I I began to recognize that I was contributing to the problem is that I was raised to really not rock the boat. The conflict was something to be avoided. And I developed this just extraordinary antenna, antenna, as many Americans do, that when you start to get into that tense area in conversations, you steer the conversation elsewhere. And you think about what that means for people um, who are experiencing some kind of a marginalization or disadvantage, whether it's race, whether it's someone who's living with disabilities and would love to see some changes around that, whether it's around sexual orientation, whether it's around class oppression, there are all these ways that people get marginalized. And then people who are in the dominant group who have been trained not to see that complain that as complaining and as some kind of a moral failing or a social faux pas, it gives no voice to the people whose voices we most need to hear to create an equitable America. Mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Debbie Irving. We're talking about her memoir, Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Uh, The first section of your book, after the very uh, well-written introduction, is called Childhood in White, in which you describe uh, uh, some of the ways in which your parents uh, almost certainly inadvertently and unconsciously 
passed on all kinds of, of racist af- attitudes to you, which you fully embraced, again, not, not even understanding that that, that was occurring. Uh, I have to ask uh, if, if your parents, uh, either of them, are still alive. And, uh, and, and I wonder uh, what it was like to write about your own childhood and write about some of these issues um, and wondering how they would receive that. Or if, did you write this, in a sense, in cooperation with them? Uh, how, how did you handle what I suspect was a pretty sensitive issue? Yeah. Um, my parents, uh, neither of them are alive, and, and I don't think I could have written this book if they were alive. Um, I didn't plan it that way. It was just the timing of the big wake-up moment for me, which was a graduate school course where I was asked to spend six months digging into my own um, history. Um, it, that just happened to occur, uh, you know, a couple of years after they had died. They died fairly close together. Um, that said, I'm from a really close-knit family. I'm one of five children and one of 20 first cousins who spend a lot of time together. And the all of my siblings read the book. The, the book that's out is version 10. There were nine versions, um, each heavily vetted. Both. <laughs> and many, you know, many writers do this, but not every writer gets as many test readers. So I had actual focus groups, and I also had family members reading each version. And, um, you know, so by the time we were ready to go, everyone had had, and maybe this is another reason I needed four years, not one, because everybody needed to wrap their heads around what I was doing and what I was laying out there on the line. But, you know, I think ultimately we all embrace the idea that are we really going to make a choice to um, maintain some myth about our family or make ourselves look good when there are millions of people suffering over an issue? No, we're not. The the right choice here is to really let, let Debbie lay it on the line, or it's <laughs> not let, because I could do it, but support Debbie as she lays it on the line. And um, my family has been incredible. Yeah. The first chapter starts with such an interesting story, which involves, uh, the way you put it in the, as you described the story, the Indians, of course, now we would say Native Americans. But a question you asked your mom when you were just five years old, whatever happened to all the Indians? So you must have seen a story or seen a picture uh, about the Indians. Well, where are they now? And uh, describe to our listeners the the answer that your mom gave you that day? Well, to put it in context, I hadn't just seen a picture. I was full-on obsessed with Indians in the way some kids are obsessed with trains or, you know, you name it, Thomas the Tank Engine. I was obsessed with Indians. I had little figurines. I wanted to live in a world where people lived in teepees and we cooked over, over the open fire. I was a horse fanatic. I still am. I wanted to ride my horse bareback. I wanted to fish all day. I wanted to be an Indian. And so when I asked my mother that question, I was already completely enamored and I, and I had romanticized this culture. Um, and I really was hoping that the answer was going to be, oh, would you like to go visit? They're, you know, they live just a couple miles away. So I asked her whatever happened to all the Indians, and she said they, they drank themselves to death. They just really couldn't handle liquor. And when I say that, and when I'm giving um, a talk, there is an audible gasp in the room. And yet people will come up to me afterwards and say, I was told the same thing. And, um, and that audible gasp is pretty similar to what I felt in my body as a five-year-old. I think that's why I remember this situation so clearly, even though I was five. I 
the, I just the, the the bottom fell out from under me. I was crushed. I was devastated. And I must have pushed her. Uh, my parents were very much believers that you protected children. So the fact that she went on to tell me this story about a, a drunken Indian on a rampage who axed an entire family became a part of that discussion, which the bottom then dropped out further. What's so sad about that story is that both the idea that um, Indians were drunk and Indians were savage was repeated again and again and again and again throughout my life in books and um, TV shows and movies. And so that's that stereotype that she had gotten from somewhere um, got reproduced in me. Hmm. And you write, I got... uh I mean, instead of getting a really thoughtful and complete answer, you write, instead, I got hand-me-down snippets that never added up and left me feeling confused and upset. Neither my mother nor I understood that moment as one of many in which she was racializing me without ever once mentioning the words race or skin color. My mother passed along to me the belief that the two were connected to inherent human difference. But I want to ask you about something else that even goes beyond the specifics of this sort of uh, of account of what happened to uh, Native Americans. Uh, you finished the chapter by saying that in, in some ways an even worse or more pervasive disservice that was done to you uh, was the way that it, it sort of made it seem like skimming the surface was okay when it comes to answering really important questions. Can you say more about that? Yeah, you know, now this is, a, again, a lot of what I say um, in the book. It's hard to say. It's, a, it's humiliating. And this is a humiliating thing to say. I was a history major in college. And um, even then, it, I don't think it was until after college that it finally dawned on me or someone pointed out to me that just because it's written in a textbook, it doesn't mean it's true or it doesn't mean it isn't biased or slanted or something. And so I took at face value everything that was given to me. I didn't, I didn't develop um, an ability to stand back and say, wait, let's think about this. Is this, does, is, is this lining up with what your observations or your gut tell you? So I was always taking information at face value, and it wasn't lining up with what my gut was telling me. And that was what that I now understand that that is what that uncomfortable, tense feeling was in me whenever the idea of race, racism came up. Whenever I was with a person of color, I would just be overcome by this sense of anxiety. And it was just all these built-up moments of, uh, sort of fear and misinformation that had been presented to me and never processed. Hmm. Plus, of course, just the whole matter of, of looking at the world in, in such careless fashion. You write at one point, uh, embedded in her incomplete story, that is your mother's incomplete story, was a message that just one piece of information drawn from a single perspective was good enough to form a conclusion. Neither my mother nor the media nor my schooling encouraged me to dig deeper to find indigenous people and ask how they told their own story. My mother passed along to me not only incomplete information, but also an intellectual habit of not questioning authority, not pursuing other dimensions of a story, and not having the interest or stamina to grapple with complex issues. Mm. I mean, those are really important words because I think 
so many of us are are guilty of that and and it plays out in in all kinds of destructive ways yeah I, and you know and i would say um one of the ways i often as i work as a, a racial justice educator is i ask people to start thinking about their own relationships you know how like in my own marriage i've been married for 20 years i spent the first 10 years of my marriage trying to get my husband to you know be more like me because it was creating you know tension in the house for him to be different than me and what I realized is I spent those 10 years just, I never sat down and said, what is it about, like, I'm, I'm incredibly scheduled and um, very organized and controlling. And I never sat down and asked him, what is it like for you to be with someone who's so uh, organized? Is there something about my style that's bothering you? So it's this whole idea that we know what we know and we, and we want other people to align with what we know as opposed to seeking other points of view, and they might be complicated, and, and there's going to be navigation as you um, get through that conflict to the other side, which hopefully is some kind of collaboration. Um, but that, you know, it plays out when you say in destructive ways. I think people would be surprised how it plays out in ways that have nothing to do, you think, with racism. Just Absolutely. In our own relationships. Of course. You you go on to t- talk about other ways in which your own particular childhood, your own background, uh, was fertile ground for some of these racist attitudes to, to, to play out. And, and, and they would be things that on the surface would, would not cause us any concern at all. I mean, the, the, the uh, emphasis that your family placed on, on optimism or the way in which your family was averse to complaint. I mean, and you, you just grew up just not particularly enjoying hearing other people complain. Well, of course, it's, that, that's, it's, it's pretty easy when you have a life in which there's not a whole lot to complain about. But then that means uh, when somebody comes along with very real reason for complaint, um, you, in a sense, um, are not going to be particularly open, particularly sensitive um, to, their, to their plight. Uh, because of something uh, that, again, on the surface, seems like a perfectly fine trait to have. Yeah, and it's actually much worse than that. It's not that I wasn't open to it. It's that I saw it as as a character flaw. And so I would immediately disregard whatever their message was would be a tainted message because it was coming from someone who had a character flaw. And again, I wouldn't have admitted any of this. I didn't know it was in there. This was so... Um, so deeply a part of my socialization, yeah. But I, I do think it is important that it wasn't it wasn't a passive. I'm not going to seek out your your different opinion. It, right. It was more than that. Y- it's like yeah. If you offer something that doesn't align with with what I think, or if you come across with a complaining tone, I'm just not going to hear you. Right. Absolutely. And there's and there's something wrong with you if you can't look to the bright side and. Pull yourself up from your bootstraps and uh, and 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 fight your way through what might be kind of going wrong. Thank uh, you. You just reminded me. Okay, oh. bootstraps comment that jarred my memory. So the thing is that I was so deeply invested, and I think there are so I think there are millions of Americans who are deeply invested in the idea that America is a level playing field, that it's a meritocracy, and that if someone isn't achieving, it has everything to do with their own um, effort or lack thereof. And that is what, 
just makes the system so terrible because it allows us to blame the victim. Debbie Irving's book, Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race, was published in 2014 by Elephant Room Press. And one more reminder that Roger Mariano's courageous conversation on racism will take place this Thursday evening at the Civil War Museum in downtown Kenosha.